coming up on this episode of Harmless. You have to read a description to the jury. I had jury members crying. I had them screaming for me to stop. I couldn't even look at them because I knew exactly what I was going to be doing to them. I would dread going into work. What would it be like to just jerk this wheel over and go into oncoming traffic? What would it really hurt? I had children of my own. I didn't like going to their school events. There's a hundred children out here. That means at least 10 of them are victims. I said, I went home and drank. He goes, what did you do? I said, I went home and drank. That was the extent of what we did to handle this horrific video. Over time, it got worse and worse to the point where I was having flashbacks 24-7. Welcome to Harmless the Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Oldenburg. In this episode, we are going to be listening to an interview or conversation with a very close friend of mine named David. David asked for me to remove his last name from this conversation. David and I met in 1996 as patrol officers working for the City of Phoenix Police Department. Dave and I worked third shift patrol together. I left patrol in 1999 to pursue a career in vice enforcement, hoping that one day I would be able to springboard that into a career in homicide. In 2001, my career was sidetracked onto the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force where I became one of the first four investigators assigned to the Arizona task force. I worked that job for four years. And after four years, I left for several reasons, one of which was a mental health break. And when I left Internet Crimes Against Children as an investigator, I was replaced by my friend David that you're going to hear from now. David worked as an investigator in the position I vacated until two years later when he and I both became computer forensic examiners at the same time, working in the same location for the same department. Dave and I received our computer forensic certification in 2008. Dave worked until 2012, until the point where he could not physically or mentally take it anymore. I came to work one day and said, where's Dave? And someone told me he's gone. I mean, gone, gone. And it wasn't until then, until I realized what was actually going on here. I continued to work as a computer forensic examiner until 2015 when the ICAC commander called me and requested I came back to be a frontline investigator until I retired in 2018. I was then given an incredible opportunity to work for a small company based out of Gothenburg, Sweden, that developed software to help reduce exposure for examiners and investigators having to do this type of work. In 2019, I reached out to David and asked if he would be kind enough to let me interview him about his experiences working as an Internet Crimes Against Children investigator and computer forensic examiner. And Dave was gracious enough to allow me to have the conversation with him about this. 
So the interview you're about to listen to is from 2019 when David was still assigned to the Phoenix Police Department, but he was no longer attached to Internet Crimes Against Children. If you are not in the Internet Crimes Against Children investigative world, I highly recommend you listen to an episode you will find called Definitions and Explanations. I will continually update that episode as more and more definitions need to be added. I aim to make sure you are fully aware and educated as to what we are discussing. If there is anything that you are not clear about, please do not hesitate to contact us and let us know. I'd be happy to add whatever that definition is you need. I really think David's story is one of the most compelling things I've ever heard and that has ever affected me professionally and personally. So with special thanks to David and his absolute vulnerability, knowing it is for the purpose of helping others, I give you my good friend David's story, part one, the truth. I started in January of 96. My brother was actually on the force for about five years prior to when I came on. I was actually working as an electrical engineer at Intel, and that was just not a job I liked. I didn't like being confined to an office, and I had always been interested in law enforcement. Just took the path to get on with the Phoenix Police Department. Started out in patrol like most people do. Went to third shift, working nights, and then from there, uh, went to day shift and then weekends off, still in patrol doing that for, I think I did about seven years I did patrol. And then I went to crime abatement, which is dealing with slumlords, helping people that are in a bad situation due to the manager of the property, not keeping it up, charging too much, stuff like that. Then from there, I went to the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, which is the ICAC Task Force. Having my background in electrical engineering and computers, I wanted to get into something computer related. And I actually looked at long-term going toward computer forensics. I thought that would be a good use of my skills and my investigation abilities, but I knew that you have to have a path to get there. You can't just go right into computer forensics. So looking at it, I thought that I'd have good success because of my investigative abilities. And since it's computer related, it would help get me to computer forensics. What was it like when you started as an investigator? Were you mentored by anybody? Were you assigned a detective to show you the ropes? Well, basically, when I went over there, there were three people that were pretty much doing the investigation side. And then I became the fourth. Chris Curley and I ended up basically becoming partners, and, and he showed me the ropes. There was a little bit of mentoring there, not officially, but we worked together, and you learn how to do various things. But then there's also classes that we take, and so we did training in various states and, and places. Cyber tips. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they send files to us saying, okay, this complaint, we looked into it. It looks like it's going to be in your state. Here you go. You guys continue the investigation. We get those and they teach you what to do and all that kind of stuff, how to do proactive investigations where you're looking into individuals that are trying to lure children for sexual exploitation. You go through some training for that, but a lot of it is you learn on the job. You learn as you do it. It was 2005 when you went to ICAC. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think so. Shift is the mental health provider on contract with uh, ICAC, and they're super helpful, but they didn't start until 2007. So the question is, was there any talk in any of the trainings that you went through, was there any talk about mental health that you remember? No. Or any, hey, be, beware, this could mess you up. No, there's really nothing like that back then. I think that's one of the issues, and I won't say it for one department. I think this was a nationwide issue. Absolutely. I, I don't think they understood or comprehended the impact that those kinds of things would have on people. Because we police officers are very type A, strong personalities, and we don't come forward. We don't come out and say, this really sucks. What we do instead is we self-medicate, we take it out on everybody else around us, and we destroy ourselves. Right. Rather than come out and say, looking at this stuff is messing me up and I need help. Instead of saying that, we go through and we'll start putting down bourbon or something else. We'll be mean to our families, our loved ones that are trying to be there for us. If you're an accountant or in the private sector, if you had a bad day at work, no problem. You go home, you tell your wife, my boss is all over my ass, or I got to get these reports done and I'm all stressed out. But when you do what we did, when you look in at that material, that's not something you want to bring home to your family. You don't want to talk about, you don't want to bring them into that because it's so horrible. Correct. And, and you really can't. You can't go home and say, hon, I had to watch this video today and then go into the details of what you saw because people don't understand how horrific this stuff is. I remember very clearly Chris Curley and I, we'd gotten a case file back from the computer forensic examiner and we were trying to pick out the images to use for charging. So we're sitting there reviewing the images and I, it's it, this one video that we watched, it was so horrific that at the end of watching that video, nothing was said. We both went home. I, I clearly remember the morning because I had just gotten in. I sat down, logged into my computer. Chris comes in. I'm like, hey. He says, hey. He sits down. I said, what'd you do? He said, I went home and drank. He goes, what did you do? I said, I went home and drank. Wow. That was the extent of what we did to handle this horrific video. It's not like I could go home and tell my wife, my mind is blown. I can't understand what I just saw. You can't tell somebody because now they're being traumatized. There's no way for them to understand what you're going through. You can't give that information to them. So you have to figure out how you're going to deal with it. And that was the biggest problem. How do you deal with that? And most people, you probably did the same thing. You internalize it because there's no way to, to get it out. Right. Because there's nobody to talk to about it other than the people that are in it with you, which is, it's good to have that camaraderie, but it's one of those things when you're a part of a group, when you know that nobody else understands you. Like it, I think about how disconnected like a teenager is. They feel like the world doesn't understand them and no matter what they say, they won't understand. And I'm of the belief now that the world wants to believe that it's just barely legal 17 year old girls running around in pigtails. They might be 18, they might not, but they don't really contemplate that this is infants, toddlers, prepubescent children. It is horrific stuff. I don't blame the public for not wanting to believe they live in a world where that exists. But in order for the, the people involved in these investigations to be taken care of, the world needs to know exactly what it is. They need to know that this is not 
girls wearing a schoolgirl outfit. This is horrific brutalization, rape, exploitation of children. It's not like somebody, oh, I'm into feet. I, I like feet. Or I like women that are really skinny or really fat or something. Like that. It's not something like that. This is something that is so abnormal and outside the realm of what a normal person can contemplate that there's no way for your brain to handle that information. It's mind-blowing how horrific some of these things are. So what I like to do when I try to describe it to people at some level is I say, you've heard of these videos on the internet where ISIS set somebody on fire or they saw somebody's head off. That is about the closest I could get somebody to understand what we're seeing because it's such an unnatural, horrific thing. I could never square it in my mind no. what I'm looking at because no. it does not make sense to me. It doesn't compute. And one of the best examples, as an ICAC investigator, we would have to go to grand jury. And at grand jury, you have to read a description of the images to the jury. This is the closest that people come to understanding what we actually saw. And realize these descriptions are very vanilla. We're not really putting in all the details that we could. We're just giving an overall. And I had grand jury members throwing up. I had them crying. I had them screaming for me to stop. And... I remember one grand jury, the grand jury was saying that you don't need to read anymore. And the attorney say, no, he has to read all 10 charging images. They were furious, but they didn't want to have to put up with any more of it because they didn't want to have to hear any of this. And at the end of it, three of the people there were crying and I can still see their faces. They were crying because of what I had to put them through just to read these charging images. And afterwards, that grand jury took a break for half an hour. It got to the point for me where I would show up to the grand jury and they'd see me and they'd either try to take a break or they'd, you just see their shoulders drop because they know no more drugs and a guy who stole a car. I'm going to have to hear about this horrible stuff. You said you have to describe the imagery, but in order for you to describe that imagery, you have to document it. So you have to watch the video, yes. slow motion and pay attention to the details so you can describe it. And people don't realize that's part of the trauma is having to sit there and study it. How horrible is that? He then put his penis in the five-year-old prepubescent female's mouth. Exactly. You have to type those words. Right. That's a horrible thing to have to do. And the other part of it that's horrible is knowing that you're going to traumatize this group of individuals that are the grand jury. I got to the point where when I went to grand jury, I couldn't even look at them because I knew exactly what I was going to be doing to them. I knew how they were going to feel afterwards. There was one grand jury that after we finished, I left, they finished their stuff up. I was asked to stick around in case they had any questions. They went on break afterwards and I had a, a few of them come out and they're like, we're really sorry you have to do that. And they were trying to express that, yes, they didn't like having to hear it, but that they were very sorry that I actually had to see it and investigate it. Did you ever have police officers give you that vibe as well? Because I used to have that too, where I'd talk to someone, they'd be like, man, how come every time I see you, I feel like I want to take a shower afterwards? Just because they know, hey, Eric, where, what are you up to? I'm still doing internet crimes against children. Oh, man, I don't know how you do that. When you got a 20-year cop who just crawled out of a dumpster with a body that's been hacked up in there, and he looks at you and says, man, I don't know how you can do that job. Yeah. What does that tell you, right? I got that several times. Guys are... They're doing the DV cases or they're doing some of this other stuff where people are getting beat up or homicides. Oh, yeah, that's, 
just went to this one where the boyfriend beat the girlfriend with a baseball bat and there blood everywhere. And hey, what are you doing? I'm doing uh, internet crimes against children. Oh, I don't know how you can do that. That I couldn't comprehend doing that. For me, I slowly started to realize how important this work is. And it went from the technology to, wait a second, this is really important stuff. We need to start getting these people off the street. You start an investigation based off of something like a cyber tip. And then as you go into that investigation, you do your subpoenas, your search warrants, and then you find out that there's actual hands-on victims, that this individual, that all you knew was that they were into the sexual exploitation images, and now you've found out that, no, they've actually done hands-on offenses, and now you're stopping that. Um, and that's when you really start to realize how important this is because now you realize you're saving those kids. And you start to realize this is probably the most important work on the department because you're saving kids that don't have a voice. When I was in ICAC, Chris Curley had a case that started out as a cyber tip, but then as we developed it, we found out, oh, this guy's actually doing hands-on offenses. It started as an investigator, but it really got drilled home when I was doing the forensics. There was a case. We went out and ICAC did their search warrant. I'm now assigned as the computer forensic examiner for all of ICAC. So when any of those guys had a case, I was the one that went out there. We were having a very hard time finding the images. We're checking computers. We're checking everything we could find. Finally, in a portable hard drive, we find the images. And as I'm going through, I'm seeing a lot of material that would be used for grooming and Grooming material is basically things like cartoons that depict an adult figure having sex with a child. And a lot of times people that do hands-on offenses, they will expose their victims to these images to make them think that this is normal, to make them think, oh, this is acceptable. You can do this and this is fine. And I've seen all this material and I'm like, this guy is doing hands-on offenses and he had two young daughters. As I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm telling these guys, listen, I'm telling you for a fact, this guy has done hands-on offenses. There's too much of this grooming material. This isn't for his enjoyment. He's grooming these children. We couldn't find the images right away when we were looking and nobody believed me, but they finally said, okay, would you be happy if we did a forensic interview on the children? I said, yes, please do that. Just put my mind at ease. They did, both kids denied it. I know I'm not wrong. I just had that gut feeling. Something in me knew that this guy had done it. So immediately made that my priority case because I was like, I know that I'm right. I've got to find it. I put all my other cases aside and you know how we were back then. We had a two-year backlog trying to get to cases. And I grabbed that case. I started the investigation and I found images of the kids. But I didn't find anything showing hands-on. I know he at least has taken these pictures. I contacted the detectives, let them know, contacted the detectives that actually do the hands-on cases, let them know. They redid the forensic interviews. What they found out was he had left the camera in with the girls when they were in plane without any clothes on. They were taking pictures because he told them to. And then afterwards he said, what you did was wrong. And if you tell anybody, you're going to be in trouble. So he uses that psychological twist as the parent to tell them now what they did was wrong. So they feel bad that they even did it and they don't want to tell anybody. It's when you start seeing those happening over and over that you realize how important 
these investigations are because you're trying to protect people that can't protect themselves. Back then, the exposure was a lot higher. And the reason why was we didn't have the technology and we didn't understand some of the stuff that we know now. So when I started doing the computer forensic examinations, the way I was trained was, all right, now you have to look at all the images and then all the videos on the computer and then categorize them. Are they possible exploitation images? Are they definitely exploitation images? Or are they just stuff that nobody cares about? You know, we actually looked at every picture on a computer. We looked at every video on a computer and we would sort them manually. Early on, when you have a case where you end up with two, 3,000 images or videos depicting the sexual exploitation of a minor, we've looked at all of those. So in a case, I would see all that. Now what I would do is I would categorize it, I would put it in a report, and then I would send that to the ICAC detective. And the way I did mine was I would look at all those, and then I would try to find ones that I can prove that this person looked at. Through link files, through other things, I can say, okay, at this time... This link file was created. This file is a sexual exploitation video. It lasts this long. And at two seconds after that, he clicked on another link to another. I would say, here's the ones that I think you should charge. And then really the ICAC detective would only have to look at those last few images. Not everything, not the 2,000, 3,000 images that I just looked at. They would just look at those last few. And then let's not discount the fact that you were not just doing that for one detective. This was not a one-to-one relationship. You had four, five, six people that were submitting cases that you had to go through every single picture and video in those cases. Yes. You had mentioned the technology. Now, at the time, you were using full forensic suites that weren't designed for specifically pictures and videos. And one of the things that sticks out in my mind is having to see the same picture over and over because the guy has seven different copies of it. When you do a a search warrant on scene, you're not just going to grab a laptop. You're getting every piece of evidence that can possibly store digital media. Anything that can hold child exploitation, we take. At what point when you were getting these cases, did you start to realize, wait a second, this is starting to affect me? You get to that point where all of a sudden I realize, and it's such a slow buildup, the problem that happens. What I tell a lot of people is, imagine a, a huge boulder, a boulder that's like eight feet tall, huge. And you take a hammer and you smash it as hard as you can against there. You might get a couple little chips off, but it still looks like that big, huge boulder. It hasn't really changed. Every time you look at one of those images, that's what's happening to your brain. It's basically somebody's taking this big, huge hammer, smashing it as hard as they can. A little piece comes off, but it still looks the same. It's it's just over time, all of a sudden you realize that big, huge boulder is now just a pile of rubble. And it's just slowly over time, and you don't really see the change happening until all of a sudden, wait a minute, this used to be very different. And... What I started realizing was I had children of my own and I didn't like going to their school events. And the reason why is because I would be at a school event and there would be a child there that would look similar to a child from a video and it would make that video play in my head. Or I would start looking at all the kids out there and doing the numbers in my head going, okay, there's a hundred children out here. That means there's at least 10 of them that are victims. At least 10 of these kids. And, and I'm sitting there trying to figure out which ones are they. And then I'm trying to look at the parents going, okay, which one of these are the ones that I want to take behind the, the dumpster and, and beat the hell out of? And for me, 
over time it got worse and worse to the point where I finally was having flashbacks 24 seven. My, my brother asked me something about it and I told him, I said, here's the best analogy I can give you. Imagine every movie you've ever seen in your life playing in your head all the time. Sometimes it's just gibberish, but sometimes it's like slows down and just goes through one section of it and, and you can't even get out of your head. It's just there. I said, but imagine that happening all the time. You wake up, it's happening. You go to bed, it's happening. It comes in your dreams. That's where it, it got to for me. It finally got to the point where I couldn't get away from it. And you had mentioned shift and shift really hadn't been uh, out here in Arizona. What happened was they came out and they did a day long conference. I remember in the beginning of the conference, they handed you a, a questionnaire, a 25 question questionnaire. You circled one or the other, and then you added up your yeses and you got points for every yes. And at the end of it, they said, if you're at six yeses, you're under stress. When you get to the point where you're eight, you're showing outward signs. And then at 10, this is the point where people around you are generally having to get involved and, hey, you need some help and yeah. things like that. I remember the guy sitting next to me, it was a friend of mine. I turned out, I looked at him, I said, what do you do if you have 22? And he goes, I don't know what you do, but I'm getting the fuck out of here because I, I'm, I'm worried. I had 22 yeses. Fast forward later, when I finally did go and get some help, some psychological help, the psychiatrist went through that questionnaire with me and she goes, you're now at 23. And she, she said, I don't know how you're even here. I don't know how you're even here. This is basically the story I tell. Dave comes into work at 6 a.m. and he sits in front of his computer and he does ICAC forensic exams on child exploitation until 11.30. And then 11.30 you go into the break room and you eat lunch for half an hour, 45 minutes. And then you come back and you sit at your desk again for another four or five hours doing case after case after case. Day in and day out. Yeah, that, that's pretty fair, yeah. You, you always, even back to the patrol days, you had an impeccable work ethic. You had a commendable work ethic. And I honestly think that that was part of the problem. Not only were you a hard worker, but you were good at it and you understood the technology better than most people in that room. I can easily make that claim. Because you were good at your job, do you think that kind of pushed you to continue doing what you were doing even though it was hurting you? Oh yeah, definitely. Because of my understanding of everything, I was able to do it faster than most and still get everything done. And I knew that if I stopped, number one, the case log would build up again. Two, other examiners would be exposed. I kind of sat there and went, somebody's going to have to see this, so it might as well just still be me because I'm already screwed up from it. I would be driving to work just dreading the fact that I would be spending the next 10 hours looking at images and videos, but knowing that if I don't do it, it's not going to be done or it's going to have to fall on somebody else. When you're doing computer forensic examinations for internet crimes against children, you know exactly what your day is going to be. You're going to see things that are horrific. There was times that I sat there and went, what would it be like to just jerk this wheel over and go into oncoming traffic? What would it really hurt? I couldn't listen to rock and roll music because the music sometimes was played in the background of the videos. My partner in patrol, when I went back to patrol, he's like, you hate country music. Why are you listening to country music? I said, because that's the only thing I can listen to that doesn't bring back these images. So I had this catch-22 of, I've got to do it because it needs to be done, but I really don't want to do it. 
And then I remember going home at the end of the day and you're just drained. It just takes everything out of you. And there's nothing I can do to help this. I can't talk to anybody about it. So you, you almost dread the drive home just as much as going to work. When you finally made the decision, I can't do this anymore, I'm done. Tell me about that. Tell me about how you came to terms with, okay, I'm done. There's a story behind that, and I call it the pink mist story. There is a day, Internet Crimes Against Children had a search warrant. It was at the two-story apartment complex. We were serving it in the second floor. They went in, they grabbed the suspect. So they're doing the interview and we go up, they're documenting where all the uh, computers are and taking pictures. And then we grab the main computer to do a preview forensically. We're doing all the stuff to make sure that we're preserving all the evidence, but seeing if there are images on that computer. And while I'm doing that, they finish the interview with the suspect. They're watching him now in the kitchen. I finished my examination and I put the computer back together so we can impound it. And as I'm getting ready to walk out of the van that we're doing our preview in, the driver of the van, who I knew very well, he looks at me and he just gets that questioning look on his face and he goes, where's your gun? And I said, it's on my hip where it always is. Back then when we were doing search warrants, I would wear a shirt to hide my gun because I didn't want people seeing everything. And he looked at me and he goes, you want to leave it here? No, I'm not going to leave it with you. I'm going to take, I'm at a crime scene. I'm going to take it with me. And he's, and then the next question was, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. He saw something I didn't know. He saw it in my face. He saw it in my body. He saw it somewhere, but he saw it. He knew that something was not right. I take that computer up, walk up the stairs, and I can tell you, I can still picture it right now in my head. When you open that door, there was a small little tile section with carpet. Off on the right was the kitchen, and there was a raised bar. There was bar stools at it. The suspect was sitting at a bar stool facing the kitchen. There's a detective on either side of the raised bar where he was seated. As I walked in, I opened the door. I had that computer in my hands, and in my head in a split second, what I saw was me setting the computer down, pulling my gun out, walking behind him, putting the gun to the back of his head and pulling the trigger, and I watched his brains go all over the, the, the cabinets. Literally saw that in my head. In that moment, I came back to where I was holding that computer and I looked and I just set the computer down right where it was in the middle of the, the doorway. I just set it down and said, here's the computer. And I went back. I don't know what happened. And he goes, what? And I told him the story. He goes, yeah, I could tell something was wrong. He goes, something didn't look right. And I said, man, that, that scared me. Because I, I, seeing that in my head, I went, okay, that's something that I would never do. But why did I see that so visually in my head, seeing every moment of it? And that's when I knew because the next step would be for something really bad to happen. This podcast is sponsored by Skinny Fat Farms Goat Milk Soap. Skinny Fat Farms hand-raises Nubian dairy goats with love for their amazing milk. That creamy milk goes into every bar for a luxuriously smooth self-care experience. We are 100% natural farm to bathroom. With over 30 fragrances, including our Goat for Men line, we have the perfect soap for you. Order online exclusively at skinnyfat.com. Get 10% off your first order with coupon code HARMLESS. 
Don't be a dope. Get yourself some gope. Only at skinnyfat.com. Are you still here? Why aren't you ordering soap right now? I know I have a cool voice, but seriously?